Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back. A quick reminder, as always, before we get started, if you like my show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a rating and review. It helps other people find the show and or don't. Up to you. On the show today, Dr. Robert Pearl is the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente, host of the podcast Fixing Healthcare, and a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford. He joins me to talk about his new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. You know, a real uplifting story. The book is tackling head-on like issues well beyond physician burnout and the flawed culture that guides medical professionals in their practice. He's one of the more, let's just say, vocal and outspoken expatriates from our fabulously broken healthcare ecosystem. He's fueled by, among other things, having had family members die unnecessarily due to hospital errors. Never good. This show is Hippocrates Shrugged, if there ever were such a metaphor. Enjoy the show. Dr. Robert Pearl, thank you so much for agreeing to come on Out of Patience. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the show. It's my privilege, Matthew. I can't wait for the interview to begin. Yes, well, it is beginning. So ding, ding, ding. Here we go. We're here to talk about your new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And I want to better understand, let's go beyond your bio. You are unbelievably Googleable in the best sense. So let's get beyond the bio. Why did you write this book and who should be reading it? The first book that I published was called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. It was a Washington Post bestseller, and it was about the systemic problems, the terrible insurance system with all the authorization processes that exist. It was about the avarice pharmaceutical industry. It was about the electronic health record that literally gets between doctors and patients. It was all about the problems in the system of American healthcare. But as I traveled around speaking at different conferences and events, something wasn't quite right about that being the sole explanation. 
So I started researching what else could be happening. And what I uncovered was this invisible force, the culture of medicine. I often refer to it in the book as the physician culture because it's what I know best. It applies to just about everyone in healthcare. And it's a force that is capable of leading to incredible outcomes. I mean, look at COVID. Had doctors working 12 and 24 hours. They donned garbage bags when they didn't have clean gowns. They put on salad lids when they didn't have N95 masks. When they passed tubes through the mouth into the lung, through the vocal cords, the patients always cough, spewing virus in their face. When they only had one ventilator and two patients who needed it, they figured out ways to put both of them on the same machine, something had never been done, not even thought about in the past. You know, this was the physician culture at its absolute best. And then I came across the problematic side, the part that contributes to 400 physician suicides a year, the part that leads American longevity to be last amongst the 12 industrialized nations. And that's the origin of the book and the themes that I cover in Uncaring. So if you had to pick an ideal human specimen that should pick this book up and learn something from it, who is that? It's going to sound a little trite. It's everyone, because we're all patients in the end. You know, I talked in my first book about my dad who died of a medical error. I mean, if it could happen in a doctor's family, my brother's the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford, two doctors in the family. If that can happen, it can happen to anyone out there. Uh, I looked at um, coronavirus, 88% of people dying, had two or more chronic diseases, poorly treated, and they weren't aware of the problems that existed, the shortcomings in medical care that was there. But it also should be read by healthcare professionals because it will open their eyes to the things that they do that they're not aware of, things around not valuing prevention, things around the hierarchy of medicine where doctors want to be near the top, but the reasons for being near the top are not necessarily the ones that are most consistent with the highest quality of medical care. And racism and sexism, there's so many problematic things that happen out of the culture. You know, a culture is a values, beliefs, and norms that we learn in medical school and residency, we carry through our entire career, but by definition, therefore, it's out of date. It's 20 years old. And so we're practicing with theoretically 21st century tools and knowledge, but a culture that's left over from the last century. I'm glad you quantified that because I'll push back a little bit. When something's for everyone, it's actually for no one. So if you really think about who deserves to know this book exists, and what can they learn from it, and what behavioral disciplines should change because of your words? Would you say deans of medical schools or heads of market access divisions or the FDA commissioner? Where is the root? The engine's broken, right? What part do you fix first, and who fixes that part? A major part of the book is the intersection of the system and the culture. And as strange as it's going to sound, it's very hard to change a culture until you change the system. So if you want to know where I would start, I would start by moving American healthcare from being paid on a piecemeal 
on a fee-for-service basis, where the more you do, the more you get paid, whether it adds any value or not. In fact, 30% of what doctors do, according to the Mayo Clinic, adds no value, and they still get paid very well for it, and move that into a system that technically is called capitation, where a single payment is provided to a group of doctors and hospitals to provide care to a given sized population. And then that will start to move this culture because in that world, you care about prevention. You start to be worried about primary care. You look at the loss of mission and purpose rather than starting with the problems around money. You start to value avoiding complications from chronic disease, not simply treating them when they arise. And it's so important to me that all the profits from this book are going to a charity, a wonderful charity called Doctors Without Borders. This is really about how do we improve the health of Americans. And so it's everyone who gets care, only the people who get care in the United States, but that to me are all the patients. Those are the ones who need to read it to understand what's there, but also the healthcare system. It's beyond medical school, although medical school could make a lot of changes to make it happen. It's about residency training, but it's also about national societies. It's about doctors in community practice. I mean, this is one-fifth of the American economy, and this is literally the system that we trust to save our lives. So the jargon of value-based care, that's all bullshit, right? It's not about who does the best job, gets paid more. How do you create egalitarianness across the entire spectrum? Value-based care is what it's about. What it's not about is volume-based care. So it very specifically looks at how do you improve clinical outcomes. You know, a few years ago, I was in Oregon and I was at a health center and there was this sign that said quality, service, and cost across the top. And along the bottom, it said, pick any two. That's such a 20th century mentality. We're in the 21st century and we have the ability, we have the knowledge to be able to raise quality, to improve that access, to improve the patient convenience and satisfaction to lower the cost, and that ends up being value-based care, but that's not what we do. 30%, as we said, of what doctors do add no value. The technology, you know, I don't know if you know, what do you think is the most common technology that doctors use to move critical information from one doctor's office to the next? I'm going to go with graphite inside a pencil. It could be. It's the fax machine. An 1850 invention, you know, I teach this at every graduate school of business. And when I tell the students it's the fax machine, they say to me, what's a fax machine? They've never seen one. I mean, we're really talking about 19th century technology, but that's the way that information is transferred. And physicians accept that is reasonable because in the culture of medicine, it's not about the 21st century information technology opportunities that exist. It's about how do I have my office where I become the one who's most important, where patients come to me and wait, and where I have a staff that defer to me. That whole model, the model of the hospital, all these are models left over from the past that the doctors cling to rather than embracing what's possible in the 21st century. So I want to get back to that tolerance of 1850s tech 
when we're launching shit to Mars at the same damn time. But how would you determine what value means? Because you're talking at like the N of 1 of N of 1 to that individual unique situation. You lost family members to medical errors. That must have devastated you emotionally. I'm sure the scars, like anyone else, we got great baggage to back ourselves into when we want to find real sense and purpose. But what would have been value to your family that wasn't there that's unique to what would have been value to me as a 21-year-old given six months to live for brain cancer? There are two parts to where the value was not there for me and for my family. The first one are the technical pieces. And again, for listeners who may not recognize this, it was not until pretty recently that doctors, when they intervened, extended life on average rather than shortening it. It wasn't until we had penicillin, actually, that that shift occurred. But even in the second part, because that, that all happened around World War II, but in the second part of the 1900s, what we saw was that doctors didn't understand the origin of heart disease. They didn't understand the cause of lung cancer. We didn't have the data yet, some of it was because it was hidden, on smoking as an example. We didn't fully understand how to treat various problems. We didn't have the diagnostic tools of today. And all of that changed over a two or three decade period. But think about it this way. When you don't have those tools, what do you value? You value anecdotal medicine because that's all you have, your anecdotal experience. You value intuition. You value the doctor's touch from a diagnostic standpoint. We're going to come to the doctor's touch for other reasons, but diagnostically. And now we have far better solutions. And what we know is it's not an end of one. That's the mistake. What it is, is it's an opportunity to use evidence-based 5,000, 10,000 cases. And out of that, to come up with the best way to take care of the problem. Now, in the book, I talk a little bit about the fact that there are exceptions, but those are rare exceptions. And in medicine, it tends to be the rule rather than the exception. My dad's problem was the failure of a preventive vaccine that would have prevented the pneumonia that took his life. All that was necessary was a single electronic health record with comprehensive information shared by all of his doctors. Sounds like it's really hard to do. It's called an ATM. You go anywhere in the world and you can put a card in and get the information out. They're all connected, but in medicine, none of them or almost none of them are connected. I'd like the physicians to have valued it and actually spent some time trying to figure out had he had this vaccine that would have saved his life because he had to have his spleen taken out, which is what made him vulnerable to the particular pneumococcal organism. I would like them to have practiced the best medicine consistently, but that wasn't what they were interested in. They were interested in the technological side of doing the splenectomy and giving the particular medication and getting a variety of laboratory tests. But the other half was the end of his life. You know, my, my dad ended up having his final death coming from a bleed in his brain. When my brother and I flew to Florida where he was, my sister was already there. My dad was strapped down in the bed. He had a breathing tube in. He had a feeding tube in. The line of doctors out the door 
the ENT doctor wanted to do a tracheostomy, the GI doctor wanted to put in a feeding tube, the neurosurgeon wanted to take out a piece of his skull to let his brain expand. My brother and I looked at the x-rays. We said, my dad's not getting better. This is not the way he wanted to, to live. And we thanked them for their efforts, but we said, no, we don't want any of the procedures done. My dad spent two and a half more days in the hospital. Not a single doctor came by. Because in the culture of medicine, if you can't intervene, if you can't do something, it's not highly valued. The, uh, the idea of being with a family in their most uh, devastating of time, just to provide comfort and sympathy, that is not something that happens in the culture of medicine. And I think I would like to have had both the technology and the human touch. Back with our guest after the break. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, Robert, my first thought when I was made aware of your work, your incredible work, I mean, again, people can Google you and find the extraordinary backstory of your career. And I've been working in cancer advocacy, health policy, market access, uh, consumer protections for 15 years. I am a cancer survivor. And I'm like, oh, great. Another fucking book that's Festivus airing of the grievances, right? It's not that. But my gut is... Can we stop complaining about what's wrong and can we start doing things that fix stuff? And I, let, let me wrap that up in a bun. In the cancer world, it was always about cancer awareness, right? Awareness of cancer. Who the fuck is not aware of cancer, right? So I would argue who the fuck is not aware that our system is fucked up, which you very clearly articulate in a phenomenal way in the book. But 
Can you point to any one specific thing that a doctor, an ethicist, a policymaker, a legislator can do? Who profits the most by quote unquote fixing shit? The only people right now who believe they're going to profit is going to be the patient. And the patient may not even be aware of that because right now everyone else is profiting. The drug companies are doing remarkable, as you know. You know, they they create drugs that they price five times what it should cost. They even sometimes buy an old drug and they just corner the market and raise the price. You have hospitals that are coming together to be able to create market clout and charge more. Uh, the specialists are able to accomplish the same thing. Now, let me add, primary care also is struggling right now. So probably if the change happened, the two groups that would benefit the most is the primary care physician and the patient. And in the hierarchy of healthcare, culture is about hierarchy. Those, both of those, unfortunately, stay near the bottom. You know, I don't know what your experience was like. It was obviously a while ago. You're probably still getting some medical follow-up. But ask yourself, Compare travel or retail to the medical experience of people today. It's 100 years apart. You can't make an appointment online. You can't purchase something online. You can't email your doctor, text your doctor, set up a video visit. The things that you would expect to be able to get from an airline, from a hotel chain, from Amazon from a retailer, you can't get, and yet you have no power to be able to change it, unlike in the rest of the world. And as I said, the second group is primary care. You know, the data says if you take 10 primary care physicians and add them to a community, longevity of life is two and a half times greater than if you add 10 specialists. You would think that these primary care doctors that are capable of increasing life expectancy two and a half times more would be at the top of the hierarchy. You can call it the food chain if you prefer, but instead they're down near the bottom. Now, why? Because in the culture of medicine, if you can't wield a multi-million dollar machine, or you can't do an interventional procedure, or you can't pull someone back right at the brink of death by unblocking an artery, and all you can do is stop that artery from becoming blocked in the first place or prevent the cancer from happening in the first place, we don't value that in the culture of medicine. And I believe that it's to the harm not only of patients, but also physicians. What you're talking about, at least for me, and for I think our listeners will nod their heads hearing this, this sounds to me like more of a consumer protection issue than a patient advocate issue. If you're talking about how the American citizen, as an American voter, there are policies in place, or maybe there aren't, and there are policies that should be invented to guarantee these protections so that you are made aware of this diagnostic. You are treated with a certain level of patient. What is our 21st century patient bill of rights or consumer health protection bill of rights? Is that your, your perspective? This is, this is a consumer voting issue because the system itself doesn't give a shit about fixing itself because it was designed to be the way it is. I'm not exactly certain I understand the differentiation you're making, but it is both a consumer and a medical issue. 
It's a consumer issue because the types of facts, information that consumers are entitled to. I mean, think about the local hospital. What's its medical error rate? What is its infection rate? The physician who's taking care of you, how much experience does he or she really have? Are they the best cancer doctor that you could go to based upon clinical outcomes? So that's the type of information that I think as a consumer you want to have. It's also the kind of information that as a patient you want to have. And not only does the healthcare system not feel an obligation to provide that to you, they actually become upset. They become insulted when you demand to know what are my chances of living if I get care in hospital or University A versus hospital or University B. I don't see separating that as a consumer or a medical issue. It's both of them. Is it fair to put it this way then? No one asks to get sick. People can choose to research what fridge to buy, what neighborhood to buy a house in, what car to look at. There's Consumer Report, there's Yelp. There's all sorts of shit when you intend to buy something. No one intends to get Keytruda one day. That is not an aspiration I can imagine anyone would ever want to have. So when you enter the economy of healthcare, you're not there by choice. So you've done no preemptive research, cancer, multiple sclerosis, endometriosis, rare disease. You didn't want to be there. And you're at the mercy of a system that you didn't have a consumer reports to look at because you're in crisis and triage. So who is going to protect that poor schmuck in the shit happens cancer store in that moment so they know what hospital is the best to go to, so they know what doctor their insurance covers? Right now, there is no one, and it's blocked by the economics of medicine and the culture of medicine. Now, what patients think often is, my doctor is excellent. In fact, you know, the first class I teach at Stanford, I ask the students, now remember, these are very sophisticated people who can do analysis of the stock market down to the 13th digit point. I say, how many of you get excellent medical care? All their hands, of course, go up because they're very self-confident individuals. And then I say, how do you know that all the hands come down? That's what I would say about the system right now. It's a question of feeling an obligation to provide that information. And I'm sure you read it about in the paper uh, that as legislation was passed to allow more transparency for patients into some of the economics around hospitals, something around how much is it going to cost you when you go there to deliver a baby, let's say, or have an elective surgical procedure done. The hospitals built into their system a way that no one could extract the data. And then, of course, they got caught as a consequence of that. It's an economic issue for them, but it's also a cultural one in that it is accepted that it's a very traditionally used patriarchal society. The doctor tells you what you need and you say yes and have it done. And again, part of why I wrote the book was to tell people you don't have to be this way. There are questions you can ask, questions that will make you a far better, again, I'll use the word consumer, 
but I think equally an empowered patient, making certain that the medical care you get is the best. And it's going to become more important as technology advances. Telemedicine to me is a fascinating approach because for most of the diagnostic sides, we're not yet at the therapeutic sides, but the diagnostic sides, cancer being a great example, it's done by a history and sophisticated technological studies, diagnostic studies. You don't need to be anywhere near the patient. Rarely is a physical exam a defining characteristic. It is in a couple of cancers, but most of them is made through, as they say, a test and a, and a radiologic procedure. Why not be able to access the best expert in the United States, or for that matter, around the world, whether they're in Boston or New York or Minnesota or California, it doesn't matter. But that's not what's communicated to patients. In patients' mind, proximity is vital, except that in the current technological world, it's pretty irrelevant for most of the uh, diagnoses that need to be made. So we're coming up on time, but I think something we could talk about is that, you know, everything starts at the top. question is, who the hell's the top? And what does the top need to do? And I'm sure we could lurch into a three-hour debate about this, but is there something simple for the layperson to understand what the top can do? Matthew, you've asked the crucial question to start pulling back this curtain. The answer is, there is no top. There is no structure there's no one in charge in the current system. This is the problem with a fee-for-service type world where the standards that are set are not standards of optimal care, they're minimum standards of care. You could never have a business without, as you're implying, having an org structure, having a CEO or a president, and then people accountable for different aspects of it, everyone has a say, and no one, no one has an authority, no one actually has an accountability for maximizing the entire process. It's why, going back to the questions from before, I believe that if we can move from this very fragmented, fee-for-service, volume-based world into one that is capitated, where there's a single payment to a group of doctors and hospitals. They're going to come together in a way that maximizes collaboration and cooperation, and they're going to recognize this need to have a structure. I mean, when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, I had that title. I had the ability to do it, but that's a small slice of American healthcare. It's maybe 10% of the way that care is provided inside a structured physician-led medical group. All in all, there's just no one there. Everyone's doing it the same. And that made sense 50 years ago when there was so little that could be done. That made sense 50 years ago when patients had acute problems and didn't have chronic disease. That made sense 50 years ago when life expectancy was so much shorter. It simply does not make sense today. And it's why it harms both doctors and patients. 
I want to have you back on the show because we barely talked about, you know, what physician culture means and looks like. And, you know, physician burnout is just like a syllables that people throw around. But what does it really mean? I mentioned earlier in the show, I wanted to talk about consumer protection in cancer prevention only because it's so much easier now to not die from cancer because of diagnostics and precision medicine, but getting those to market is nearly impossible. And that's something else I think we could really drill down on, on a fascinating conversation, but unfortunately we're at time and this has been incredibly valuable. So Dr. Robert Pearl, author of the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients on sale now wherever books are sold, with proceeds benefiting Doctors Without Borders. Robert, thank you so much. We will definitely have you back on for a part two. Matthew, it's been fun. I can't wait for the next time. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.